we start off here, you know, this far apart, right? Because at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, you spend five minutes talking with your worst enemy, your, your strongest adversary. Spend five minutes, you will find something in common and that gap narrows. You spend another five minutes, you find more in common and it narrows even more. When you get to this point, you are having a relationship with your adversary. It may not be you're going to each other's house for dinner at this point, but you're having a cordial relationship, all right? You keep on talking, you even find more in common, and now you're here. This is a friendship. You may not agree on everything, but you're having some kind of friendship. When you reach this point, you have found more in common than you have in contrast. And the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you go to a mosque, a temple, a synagogue, or a church, or wherever, begins to matter less and less. And then that person begins to think, why did I hate that person? I didn't even know him. Now I know him. I can't hate this person sitting across from me. Maybe he doesn't go to my religious institution, but he wants the same thing that I want. And so you, ha you have a cognitive dissonance. It's very hard to hate somebody when you're sitting across the table speaking the same language and finding all these commonalities. Then you begin to question yourself. Greetings and a warm welcome to Intersections. Our goal here is to find ways to dissolve boundaries, boundaries that limit us, that confine us, that hamper our capacity to really think about the larger potentialities, both in our own lives and in humanity at large. Today, we have a true boundary breaker with us, somebody who is not just researching or codifying or teaching this stuff, which he does do, but is living this life of moving beyond boundaries and helping not just himself, but society at large dissolve those boundaries. It is a great pleasure for me to have in our midst Daryl Davis. He is an award-winning musician, a renowned artist and race relations expert, an actor, a lecturer, an author. He's the leader of the Daryl Davis Band and has played with many acclaimed musicians, including Chuck Berry, Jerry Lewis, B.B. King. He's often called the rock and roll race reconciliator. For the past 40 years, he has spent time befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan, and he's convinced many of them to to de-radicalize and has been directly or indirectly responsible for over 200 members leaving the Klan. He is the first black author to write a book on the Ku Klux Klan called Clandestine Relationships. He has acted on stage and film and television and is the subject of the award-winning documentary Accidental Courtesy, which details his real-life encounters with the Ku Klux Klan. Daryl is a real joy and a pleasure to have you in our midst. Thank you for joining us today. You know, the first thing I notice about you, Daryl, I mean, you have um, engaged in some very high stakes, some very hypercharged interactions with people, and yet you are very grounded. There is a certain very calming energy to you. It's as if, I don't know, one gets the sense that nothing phases you. And, you know, we might all have a moment here and a moment there, but that's the predominant experience one gets of you from the outside. I like to think of it as something like 
inner charisma, you know, inner charisma that comes from the depths of one's soul. How is it, Daryl, that um, you have cultivated this temperament? Is it just something natural that you, you know, acquired early in life or something that you had to consciously work on? I think it's something that I acquired over time, perhaps starting early in life. You know, I was the child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up as an American embassy kid traveling the world beginning at the age of three. So every two years we were in a different country and then returning home in between assignments. And, you know, when you take my my childhood travels with my parents and now my adulthood travels as a professional musician touring and performing around the world, when you combine those two sets of travels, I have been to a total of uh, 62 foreign countries on six continents. And that has allowed me to be exposed to a multitude of ethnicities, skin colors, religions, uh, cultures, ideologies, and all of that has helped shape me. And I've determined that no matter how far I go from my own country, whether it's right next door to Canada or to Mexico or halfway around the globe, I've been to India, I've been to many different places, everybody that I have met, everybody that I have encountered, regardless of whether they they may not look like me, they may not speak my language or worship as I do, I've always concluded one thing, and that is that we all are human beings. And being human beings, everybody wants these five core values in our lives. They're universal. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be respected. We all want to be heard. We all want to be treated fairly and truthfully. And we all want the same things for our family as anyone else wants for their family. And I've found that if we apply those five values or any of them, when we find ourselves in an adversarial uh, situation or a culture or society in which we are unfamiliar, that our navigation of that situation, that culture, that society will be much more smooth and much more positive. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal, prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. And I believe truly that it is the travel and exposure that I was afforded beginning as a young child by my parents that enabled me to, to, to see different cultures and be acceptive of them. So when I sit down with uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, not that I'm buying into that culture, but I see it as another culture and I treat it with those five core values and that is what has enabled me to be successful. Having done all that travel, does not make me a better human being than anybody else by any means. But what it has given me is a better and broader perspective on humanity than many people who may not have had those experiences. And so now I want to share those experiences either in person or vicariously with those who have not been afforded that kind of travel. You know, I'm all about dissolving boundaries. I, I, I like to really aspire to live up to this Leonardo da Vinci kind of theme. You know, he said, like, 
operate in life as though everything connects to everything else. You know, that study the art and science, study the science and art. Mm. And so in your case, right, here you are, you're living these two parallel lives. One is as a highly accomplished and passionate, you know, musician, right? And then on the other side, you're this like social change agent, you know, with the kind of incredible work that you're doing dissolving, you know, these social, you know, boundaries. Do you see these as two distinct aspects of who you are or is there any connective tissue between them? Oh, <laughs> there is absolutely connected tissue there. And, and you know, you, you described it perfectly, but now let me, let me bring them together so you can see they're basically one and the same. Um, yes, I'm a musician. And yes, I, I'm a, a race reconciliator trying to bring people together who, who think there are racial differences or something. You know, there's only one race, it's the human race, and it's man that, that makes these racial, you know, constructs that divide us. But as, as a band leader, my job on my stage is to foster harmony between the different voices on my stage, whether they are the vocal voices of people singing, whether they're my instrumental voices, my saxophone player, my piano, my drum, bass, guitar player, the instruments or the vocal voices. I want harmony there. The only time that I want dissonance is when I intentionally inject it into the music for effect. Because if dissonance happens randomly, that's not music, that's noise. That's because somebody hit a bad note or went out of tune or something like that, and that's not desirable. It's only desirable when you inject it into the music with intent. Sort of like, you know, when you're watching a movie and there's a scary scene, there is some kind of dissonance going on to, to joke the body, you know? So, you know, that's intentional. So because my job as a band leader is to foster harmony and only intentional dissonance, I would want the same thing when I come off the stage, when I am vacillating around in society. I want harmony around me. I want to foster that as well. When I see conflict, I want to see what can I do to reconciliate, to, to resolve this. Because as a musician, I'm seeking harmony. So naturally, you know, when I'm finished playing my gig and I want to be out in society, I, I want harmony there too. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that way of thinking about one united platform that you are pursuing in, in, in both aspects. And so let's move into the, you know, really profound work you've been doing in the in the race area. You said once, you said, we've simply been putting band-aids on the wounds of racism. We yeah. haven't drilled down to the bone to get to its source. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, I I've always said that ignorance fosters fear. We fear those things of which we are ignorant. And if we don't address that fear and keep that in check, and alleviate it, that fear in turn will escalate into hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. If we don't stop the hatred from escalating, that escalates into anger, which then in turn escalates into destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless and we are simply ignorant. So my feeling is this, in certain situations, like say in a corporation, a company, a department, 
you can start top down. You want to resolve problems down below on the street, on the floor of the department or whatever, then you start, you start with the administration at the top. If they're tight upstairs, that will trickle down and people down below, the subordinates will also be tight because they take their cues from the top, all right? But with a situation like this, it's got to be bottom up. I say, forget about the destruction, all right? What's been destroyed is not coming back. Don't accept it as, as, um, as an okay. No, it's not okay to destroy things, okay? But don't spend a lot of time trying to address it. It's not going to resolve. It's been destroyed. The destruction is a symptom, is a byproduct of the nucleus, the root cause. Forget about the hate. Same thing, a symptom. The fear, same thing, a symptom. The root cause is the ignorance. If we cure the ignorance, then there is nothing to fear because we fear that of which we are ignorant. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate because we hate the things that frighten us. With nothing to hate, there's something that makes us angry and we rise to the level of wanting to destroy. So the good thing is there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. And if we can focus our energy, our efforts, our time and our money on providing that education and exposure, we can alleviate the ignorance. And then those other byproducts don't exist. And that's where we should focus. And it doesn't matter whether you're a child or adult. It's the same thing. You know, when I, I do a lot of lectures, obviously to adults, but I also speak with children and, you know, in classrooms, little kids. And sometimes I'll be talking with them like I am right now. And they're all lined up in their rows of little desks and chairs and they're listening to me. And then all of a sudden I'll jump and I'll say, hey, hey, there's a snake under your chair. And I'll point to somebody in the front row. I'm pointing to the floor under a desk in the front row saying there's a snake there and everybody five rows back starts screaming and throwing their legs up in the air. Just at my suggestion, there's a snake crawling around the front desk. All right. And they're screaming and, you know, throwing their legs up. And then they realize there is no snake and I'm just making a joke and they start laughing. And I ask them, I say, why were you screaming? Why were you getting all upset? And the responses you hear from everybody is, I hate snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. Well, there's your hate. There's your fear. All right. So I say, well, why do you hate snakes? Why are you afraid of snakes? Well, because they're, they're, they're poisonous. They're slimy. Well, there's your ignorance. Because if you've ever touched a snake, it's not slimy. It's very dry. And not all snakes are poisonous. There are some good snakes, right? So there is your, your, your fear, your ignorance, and your hatred. And so I say to them, okay, obviously there, there was no snake under your desk. I was just joking. However, let's just say there really was a snake under your, under your desk. What would you want me to do about it? You know what they say? Kill it. There's your destruction. So it goes all the way from childhood to adulthood. Ignorance breeds fear, which breeds hatred which breeds destruction. So let's start at the bottom, cure the root cause, the nucleus, and then we don't have to worry about those byproducts. But it's a huge lesson that you're teaching us on the discipline it takes to create sustained change. I'm hearing you say it's, it's not about 
you know, just superficially trying to enforce a certain behavior code. It's about getting to empathetically understand what's causing it from within and then and that, that inner stuff, the interesting thing with that inner stuff is you can't just enact laws through which to force people to change the inner stuff. You know, that's completely their own their own prerogative. I mean, they make the decision whether to change it or not. You can't even necessarily measure it or see it or police it. Right. A, a law will only compel someone's behavior because they don't want to go to jail, something like that. But it does not change their feeling. It's sort of like, take uh, the example we had here back in the 50s with uh, Rosa Parks and the bus boycott, where black people were not allowed to ride in the front of the bus. Uh, the day that that law changed because of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King's bus boycott, the day the law changed and we were allowed to sit where we wanted to sit, that did not change the feelings of the other bus riders about us. It just made them accept it because they would be arrested instead of Rosa Parks if they violated the law. So, you know, time changed that. Exposure to us changed that. So we need to accelerate that exposure, accelerate that education, and that will also uh, be very effective. I want to make sure that our listeners, um, Daryl, are going to take away a tangible sense of the kind of magic that you have been able to weave in the context of these, you know, very amazing aspirations, right? Or wanting to help change people's hearts and minds, open them up, make them get rid of the fear and the hatred and lead to more deeper transformation. Can I invite you to go back to the Silver Dollar Lounge in Frederick, Maryland and something that happened there in 1983? Because I think that'll be just a great story for our listeners here. Yeah, and it's kind of paradoxical. The Silver Dollar Lounge is a was a, a lounge, a bar, a nightclub in a town called Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour and 20 minutes north of Washington, D.C. And the Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation of being an all-white lounge. Black people were not welcome. There were no signs that said, you know, whites only, no blacks allowed, nothing like that. No, no visible signs. But you knew if you went there, you would definitely feel uncomfortable and you were not welcome. When you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, sometimes it's not a good combination. So most black people avoided this place. Well, I had joined a, uh, a band, a musical band, that was very popular in the area. And uh, it was an all-white band. I was the, the only black person in the band. And uh, they had played the Silver Dollar Lounge before. And now they were having a return engagement there. So here I am in the Silver Dollar Lounge. My first time, and I was the only black person in the whole place. And after our first set of music, we were taking a break, and I'm following the band to go sit down at the band table, take my break, when I felt somebody from behind come up and put their arm across my shoulder. Now I see the whole band in front of me because I'm following them. And I don't know anybody in here, so I'm turning around trying to see who's touching me. And it was a white gentleman, I would say 15, maybe a little bit more years older than me. And he had a big smile on his face. And he says, man, I sure like your all's music. I said, thank you. I shook his hand. And he pointed at the stage. And he says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? And I explained that I just joined the band recently. And yes, he's seen them before because they told me they played here before. 
but this is my first time. And he says, man, I sure love your piano playing. This is the very first time I've ever seen a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, for perhaps for some of the people in your audience who may not know who Jerry Lee Lewis uh, was, he just passed away very recently. Uh, he was a, a white rock and roll piano player. He was there at the heyday, at the beginning of rock and roll that was created by black artists like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Bo Diddley, and others. And it was popularized by the white artists, their contemporaries like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bill Haley and the Comets, Buddy Holly, Carl Perkins, and many others. So something I had done while I was playing that set of music reminded him of Jerry Lee. And he made that statement that he'd never seen a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I was not offended, but I was surprised because given the fact that he was that much, at least a decade and a half older than me, that he did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano style, which Jerry Lee learned from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. And I explained to him that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did. And when I told him of his black origin, he did not believe me. And, oh, no, I, I never seen no black man play like that except for you. I said, listen, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee is a good friend of mine. He's told me himself of his influences. He didn't believe that I knew Jerry Lee. He did not believe that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people, but he was fascinated with me and wanted me to go back to his table and allow him to buy me a drink. So I don't drink alcohol, but I went back to his table. I let him buy me a cranberry juice. He pays the waitress. He takes his glass and he cheers me, he clinks my glass. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And I'm sitting there like, what? <laughs> you know, because given my background of having been all over the place, at this point in my life, I had sat down literally with thousands of white people or anybody else to have a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And this man had never done that before. It was almost incredulous to me. And so innocently, I asked, I said, why? And he didn't answer me. He looked down at the, at the table. I said, why? And his buddy elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. And he looked back at me and says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I started laughing at him because I thought he was joking. You know, I know a lot about the Ku Klux Klan, a whole lot. And I know they don't just come up and embrace a black man and want to buy them a, a, a beverage and sit down and hang out and praise their musical talent and have conversation. It's not like that. So this guy must be joking. And while I'm laughing at the joke, he goes inside his pocket, looks through his billfold, his wallet, and hands me his Klan membership card. I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia. I stop laughing. This card is for real. It's not funny anymore. I give it back to him. We have a conversation. And it's a good conversation. It's a very, you know, it's a very friendly conversation. And I see how naive this man is. He knew very little about me. He knew even less about music because he didn't know where Jerry Lee's style came from. So we had a good conversation and we talked about the clan some more. He gave me his phone number. I didn't ask for it. He gave it to me and asked me to call him anytime I was to return to this lounge with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning clansmen and clanswomen, to see, as he put it, he, he wanted them to see the black man who plays like Jerry Lee. 
So I would call him every six weeks. He'd come. He'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen. You know, they didn't come in the robes and hoods. They came in regular clothing. And uh, they'd gather near the stage and watch me play the piano with the band. They'd get out on the dance floor. They'd dance to our music. And on the break, I would make my way over to his table to thank him for coming, meet some of them. There were two of them. Every time I'd walk that way, they'd get up and they'd move to the other side of the room. And when I left, they'd come back to the table. So the message was, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to shake your hand. We just want to look at you. And that was okay. The others, you know, they were curious. They wanted to talk to me, meet me, et cetera. So, you know, that was a good thing. And that went on to the end of that year, at which time I quit that band. And I went back to playing rock and roll and some other genres of music. And I lost track of them. But then it dawned on me because as a child, I had a, a racist experience with people throwing things at me at the age of 10 when I was the only uh, black participant in a parade. And some, and some people, not everybody, some people you know, threw things at me. And I did not understand that. And when, uh, I, when that happened, I formed a question in my mind at the age of 10, which was, how can you hate me when you don't know me? So I've always been looking for the answer to that question. And so after I left the band that I played with at the Silver Dollar, a few years later, it dawned on me, Daryl, you, you missed your opportunity to find the answer to that question. Because who would be, who, who was the best person to ask other than someone who would go so far to join an organization that practices hating people? Who ever heard of such? Join an organization that practices hating people who don't look like them, who don't believe as they believe. Get back in contact with that Klansman and ask him to introduce you to the leader of the Klan here in, in the Maryland area. Sit him down, interview him, write a book because no book had been written by a black author on the Ku Klux Klan from the mm -hmm. perspective of sitting down face to face, having an interview. At this point, you've had some interactions with this gentleman. They haven't really necessarily led to any kind of transformation or changing of his, his mind. But there's a friendship that is brewing. And you already feel optimistic that you can actually build a bridge with this group? Absolutely. You know, listen, we start off here. You know, this, you know, this far apart, right? Because at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, you spend five minutes talking with your worst enemy, your, your strongest adversary, spend five minutes, you will find something in common, and that gap narrows. You spend another five minutes, you find more in common, and it narrows even more. When you get to this point, you are having a relationship with your adversary. It may not be you're going to each other's house for dinner at this point, but you're having a cordial relationship, all right? You keep on talking, you even find more in common, and now you're here. This is a friendship. You may not agree on everything, but you're having some kind of friendship. When you reach this point, you have found more in common than you have in contrast. And the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you go to a mosque, a temple, a synagogue, or a church, or wherever, begins to matter less and less. And then that person begins to think, why did I hate that person? I didn't even know him. Now I know him. I can't hate this person sitting across from me. Maybe he doesn't go to my religious institution, but he wants the same thing that I want. 
And so you, ha you have a cognitive dissonance. It's very hard to hate somebody when you're sitting across the table speaking the same language and finding all these commonalities. Then you begin to question yourself. I'm also very fond of saying that we need to do something and we can do it physically or we can do it virtually. And let me explain what I'm talking about. In diverse populations, especially here in our country, whether it's a college or a company or whatever, you find people there who work together on the same project. They may even share the same cubicle. But what happens at 12 noon? They go downstairs to the cafeteria for lunch and blacks sit with black, Hispanics sit with Hispanics. This group sits with the same group. They self-segregate. Does this mean that they are racist? No, not necessarily. Many people feel comfortable around familiarity. You know, they want to share something in common, and that's okay, okay? Now, if you try to go and sit at their table, and they say, oh, no, 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 you go back to your table, you don't belong here, then yes, there's a problem, and it needs to be addressed. But I would say once or twice a week, get up from your comfort group at your lunch table and walk across the cafeteria and sit at somebody else's table. Do you have a lot to learn from that person or those people? And they have a lot to learn from you. It's a teaching learning exchange. And in the process, I will guarantee you, you will most likely make a new friend and they will broaden your horizons. I don't have familiarity. I am familiar with everybody because that's how I grew up. I was changing cultures every two years all over the place. So I didn't have a familiar group that I grew up with. In fact, hold that thought for one second. I'll come back to that. So walk across the cafeteria and sit with somebody else's group. You can do it physically if you're going into work or you're going into school, or you can do it virtually over the internet, like you and I are talking right now. Contact somebody from your company who works in another state, in another country. You know, and, you know, when you're off work, contact them and say, hey, let's just have a conversation. Let's you know, get to know one another. You know, what do you do with your family on the weekend? Blah, blah, blah. Get to know one another. It's not gonna it's not gonna take any skin off your back, you know, and you will learn something, you will teach something. So my uh, parents wanted me to do high school and college all in the same place, because that was important. Because, you know, my, my earlier grade school, I was changing uh, schools every two years, because I was changing countries every two years. So they wanted me to be stable in the higher grades, right? When I came here, back home, here to the States, eighth, ninth grade, it was a phenomenon to me that all of my, my schoolmates, they, they had known each other since kindergarten. You know, they, they knew each other that long. They've been to school that long. I never knew anybody for more than two years. You know, so to me, that was a phenomenon, right? And so uh, at my school, we had little clips of people you know, the, 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 uh, the sports people, the, the, you know, the studious people, you know, this, this click and that click. And the clicks, they all knew each other because they'd been to school all their lives, but they did not associate with each other. So now I'd only been here for a couple of months, right? We've just come back from overseas. So I'm the new kid on the block. The two most popular people in my school, a boy named Albie and a girl named Debbie, they were the two most popular people in my school. They each belonged to a different clique. 
and they each were running for student body president of the school. And because they did not associate with other cliques and they saw me who associated with all the cliques, because that's all I knew, right? Um, they asked, each one of them asked me if I would run as their vice president on their ticket because they're thinking, well, Daryl knows all these other cliques. You know, if I have him on my ticket, they'll vote for me, right? Now, both Albie and Debbie were good friends of mine. You know, I'd only known them two months. And I didn't want to pick one over the other because the other would be hurt. So what do you do? And I went home and I thought about it. It took me a while, but I thought hard about it. And I decided, you know what? If both Albie and Debbie think that much of me to ask me to run as their vice president, maybe I should run against both of them and me run as president. So that's what I did. I ran as president, the th you know, the third choice, against the two most popular people in my school. And guess what? I won. Everybody knew them a lot longer than they had known me. But I had made friends with everybody in all these cliques, and I was the newcomer. So that's the power of communication, of starting here and then coming here. When two enemies or adversaries are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. They may be disagreeing, but at least they're talking. It's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So we always want to keep the conversation going. Wow, how beautiful, how beautiful. So let's go back to that moment. You've been taking us through the arc of that story. You reconnect with this individual who you'd met at that bar. You are asking him to connect you with um, with others, like the head of the Ku Klux Klan in Maryland. And uh, you're working on wanting to write this book now. And so what happens next? Okay, and, and, and let me just add, that individual, that Klansman, okay, who's in a club with his tribe. You know, people get tribal. You know, they congregate together, self-segregate, all right? People like me are not welcome there. He literally, he literally walked across the cafeteria because I'm just there doing my job. He got up from his table and came over to the stage where I was coming off and talked to me. I wasn't looking for him, okay? He was curious about me, and he walked across the cafeteria. In this case, he walked across the lounge, all right? And look what happened. A friendship bloomed. This is the power. That's why I say, get up from your comfort group and walk across the cafeteria and sit with somebody else one day, regardless of, of how you perceive them. You realize one's perception is one's reality. Even if it's not real, it's their reality. So if you want to, you cannot change anybody's reality. If you try to change the reality, no, you're wrong, you need to listen to me, you're gonna get pushback because they only know what they know. If you want their reality to change, you must offer them a better perception. If they resonate with your perception, then they will change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. So he had a certain reality in his mind about black people not playing this style of music, but he only knew Jerry Lee Lewis to play this style of music. He walked across the cafeteria or the lounge. He got to meet me. His perception changed, and thus his reality changed. So, to your point, I got back in contact with him, and I wanted him to introduce me to the Klan leader in my area, 
he did not want to do that. He was fearful for his safety and for my safety. He genuinely liked me. He said, I dare, I cannot bring a black man to, to this leader. And I, I begged and pleaded with him. I said, well, give me the, you know, the man's name was Roger Kelly, the leader. I said, give me Mr. Kelly's phone number and address. He did not want to do that. I finally convinced him to give it to me. He gave it to me on the condition that I not tell Mr. Kelly where I got his personal information. I said, okay. And he warned me. He said, Daryl, because I, I told him, I want to write a book on the Klan. I want to sit down with Mr. Kelly and interview him. And he said, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you. And he was genuinely concerned for my safety. I said, that's the whole reason I need to see him. Why would he kill me? Just because I'm black? I mean, what, I, this is what I need to understand. I, this is what I want him to explain to me. So he gave me the number and he warned me again, don't fool with him, but don't tell him where you got the number. So that's how that started. And I, I interviewed, you know, Roger Kelly and I traveled up north, down south, to the Midwest of the country, the West Coast, and interviewed many different Klan leaders and members. And thus, you know, wrote that, you know, that first book on the Ku Klux Klan, uh, written by a black author from in-person interviews. There were many who would talk to me. Uh, there were some who would not talk to me at all once they saw me. Because uh, in it now, today, everybody associated with those kind of groups, they know who I am. If they, if they don't know me personally, they know of me. So they know I'm black. But back then, they didn't, you know, when I first started, they didn't know I was black. And I would have my white secretary phone them and say she's working for somebody who's writing a book on the Klan, which you consent to sitting down and giving my boss an interview. And I expressly told her, do not tell them that I'm black. If they ask, don't lie to them, but don't give them reason to ask. And then that way, if they agree to do the interview, obviously they can see I'm black when they meet me. So that's how that initially began to work. So you meet this individual. They're radically racial in their thinking, racist in their thinking. I mean, where, where does one go from there? How does one make progress, you know, with um, a situation like that besides just, you know, praying for a peaceful encounter? Can you, can you walk our business through, like, how you made this evolve into something more transformative? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and... And let, you know, let, let me preface this by saying a Klansman or neo-Nazi or white supremacist or black supremacist, I mean, whatever. These people are not stamped from a standard cookie cutter. They come from all different walks of life, all different education, socioeconomic backgrounds, different reasons for joining these, these um, uh, racist groups or whatever. So they're individuals. But what allows me to, to deal with them and, and, and to receive return visits. Not, like I said, not everybody. You know, there were those who would not talk to me. There were those who wanted to get violent with me. I've had some violent encounters. Fortunately, few and far between. And even some of those have come back and apologized and then talked to me. Not everybody, though. There will be those who will die being racist and violent. All right. So anyway, uh, the application of those five core values, the most, Im the most important asset that we have as human beings is our credibility. That is our most valuable asset. Not how much money you have in the bank or what kind of car you drive or whatever. It is your credibility because you only have one opportunity to make a good first impression. 
If you're lucky, you may have a second or third opportunity to make an impression, but only one opportunity to make a good first impression. And most people would judge you by their first impression of you, right? So if even though they may not like me, I want to see them again. I don't just want to have one meeting because nothing changes in one meeting. I want to see them again. So even though they may not like me, they give me the time and give me this interview and they cuss me out. I'm inferior. I'm this, I'm, you know, whatever it is that they believe. I sit there and I listen to them. All right. I give them that respect. I'm not respecting what they are saying. I am simply respecting their right to say it. All right. And I sit back and listen. That is something that they're not accustomed to. Because, you know, when you attack somebody, their integrity, their dignity, people get emotional and they want to fight. And then the whole thing goes downhill and nothing gets accomplished. I just sit there and listen to them insult me and whatever else. I'm, I, you know, people say to me, well, don't you find that offensive? Sure, I find it offensive. But am I offended? No, I'm not offended. You know why? Because I know who I am. You know, they don't know who I am. So how, why would I let somebody who walks into my room to be interviewed and they've only seen me for five minutes define who I am? Tell me that I'm inferior, I'm lazy, I'm a criminal because of the color of my skin. You know, they don't know me. So why should I be offended by a lie? If my mother or father were to say those things about me, maybe they'd have some credibility because they, they brought me into the world, they raised me but not somebody who doesn't know me. So I'm not going to get emotional over somebody who's trying to define me when I've known myself my whole life and they've only seen me for five minutes. So people get carried away with emotions and they want to fight and defend themselves. You don't have to defend yourself. Know who you are before you go into that room. Because if you don't know who you are, they will tell you who you are and you might walk out believing them. So I know who I am going in. So when I allow them to express themselves, because, you know, when they first walk into the room, their wall is up and they see me and they're in defense mode. This is the enemy. You know, they're ready to push my buttons and, and attack and defend, etc. Their wall is up. When that wall is up, their ears are plugged. They don't want to hear anything I have to say. I am the inferior one. They are the superior one. They have the knowledge. I have nothing. And... No matter what you say, when somebody is like this, their wall is up, nothing goes in. It's like talking to a brick wall. But when you apply those five core values, you have good demeanor, you show that respect, you allow them to be heard, you, you know, all that, the wall begins coming down. And as the wall comes down, the ears begin to open. And when the ears are open, that's when you can impart your point of view, and they will hear it. They're not going to change immediately. But what happens is this. I've seen it many, many times in these 40 years. They go home, and they think, man, I just had a three-hour conversation with a black man. And, you know, we didn't come to blows. You know, yeah, maybe we got a little loud, maybe we argued about this, but we didn't fight. You know, and, and what, what he said about this it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said was true. Oh, but he's black. So they're having that cognitive dissonance. They realize what I said was true. It made more sense than what they thought, but they don't want to accept it right now because it, it goes against everything that they've learned, you know? So they struggle. 
Nobody likes struggle. It's stressful. So that cognitive dissonance has to be resolved. It's a dilemma. So then it reaches a point where they have to decide, do I um, disregard Daryl's skin color and believe the truth because it is true? And now I have to change my ideological direction? Or do I consider his skin color and continue believing a lie? That's their dilemma. Most people, not all, most people will follow the path of the truth because they want to alleviate that stress. Now, here's something else. If you were just a member of these organizations, it's a lot easier for them to accept that change and make that change. But as you rise in leadership and you become a leader in those organizations, when you become a leader, that means you have followers. And your followers accept you and accept what you teach them. So now you're a leader and you realize you're wrong. How do you go to your followers and tell all your followers, hey, folks, uh, I was wrong? That's, that's a very hard thing to do. And it's also hard to give up power. Because, you know, when, when you have sat on the throne of power for so long, you don't want to give it up, you know? So how do you tell these people that look up to you, they worship you, you are their leader, they, are at your, they, they obey you? How do you go and tell them, hey, I was wrong, you need to change you know, your, your, your direction? That's a very hard thing to do. But many of these people have done that through that friendship because they want to alleviate that pressure and stress on themselves. For our listeners, there are incredible stories just as what Daryl has been telling us here with more tangibility, more detail, more of the richness of what the conversations have been that Daryl, you had with some of these individuals, which I really encourage our listeners to tune into and absorb from you. And some of those are in your TEDx talks and some of those are in your other podcasts and you know in your documentaries. So there are a bunch of different sources through which you can learn more about what Daryl has been doing in, in ways that are very instructive, you know, very, very, very tangible and, and make you realize that, you know, yes, there's an inspirational like theory aspect to what, you know, Daryl, you're, you know, offering here to us with these five values, but there is a very, very real and tangible way to live, live these in, in, in these messy real world moments. Absolutely. Because, you know, I am not, as I put it, I am not a psychologist. I am not a sociologist. I am just a rock and roll piano player. So if, so if I can go and do these things, anybody can do them. Walk across the cafeteria, whether you do it physically or you do it virtually. Yeah, I mean, I, I love so many themes in what you're, you know, just sharing with us, the discipline of walking across the cafeteria, you know, that any or all of us can apply to a life to just kind of go and sit on a table that you generally do not consort with, you know, those people. The values of unconditionally loving and respecting and listening, uh, the attunement towards finding common ground, you know, finding something between you and them that is the same, you know, and, and then people start getting, as you said, inching their way closer and closer. I think the part that I find most powerful, you know, and transformative um, in your story that um, if we could all absorb, you know, it would just make our family lives better, our friendships better, our communities better and everything, you know, nations better, international order better, is the patient aspect, the surrender aspect. There is a 
level to which you are in the moment recognizing that, look, I haven't been able to fully move the needle with this individual, and they're still, you know, espousing thoughts and ideas that uh, I stand fiercely opposed to, but I'm not going to sever ties, you know, I'm not going to feel defeated. I'm going to let them go home and marinate and just aim and wait and hope to see what emerges tomorrow. And maybe for some of them, they'll never change, but some, you know, so there's an aspect of surrender and almost a respect for that individual choosing to at their own pace, at their own time, making their own choices. We are a very impatient society. We want things yesterday. You know, things take time. And, you know, you have to, to plant the seed. You must come back and nourish the seed so it grows and blooms. It's not going to grow out of, out of the dirt and form a beautiful flower overnight. It takes time. And so you, you used a good word, marinate. You know, plant that seed, let it marinate. Come back and water it. You know, give more nurturement to it. And over time, it will grow. I've had this happen to me five times in, in the 40 years where I've spoken at an elementary school and I give a, a talk to maybe some eighth graders, seventh graders, whatever. And then years later, I'm speaking in a whole different state somewhere at a college. Uh, this uh, sophomore boy, uh, he, he's uh, in his second year of college. I come onto the campus to, to give a lecture. He comes running up to me and says, Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis, you know, you spoke at, at, at my elementary school in Maryland, in Montgomery County. I remembered what you said, and I told the student, the, the student council, the student activities board about you, and they brought you here. So all those years later, whatever I said that he was in seventh grade, eighth grade, he retained. And now he's in college years later telling the people, hey, this guy, Daryl Davis, blah, 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 and they bring me there. So, you know, you never know what effect you might have on somebody. And the, and the idea is, is, you know, you want that return visit. Always be credible. You only have that one opportunity. If, if you impress somebody, and uh, even though they may not like you, and you say, uh, listen, I appreciate the time you spent with me. I appreciate the information you've given me. Give me a couple weeks to process it. Uh, maybe I'll have some questions in two weeks. Is it okay if we get together and just do a follow-up? Even though they don't like you, they say, yeah, okay. You know, because you've been credible, right? But if they catch you in a lie or you prove yourself not credible, they say, no, nah, no, nah, we're done. Don't call me anymore. We'll finish. So, you know, your, your credibility is your most valuable asset. And you want that return visit with those people. And that is what has happened. So, you know, I don't just see Roger Shelley one time or any of these at one time. I see them time and time again. And even though they, you know, they don't like me for a while, I'm the enemy. They're, they're the, the supremacists. I'm the inferior one. You know, I'm credible. So that's why they're willing to see me. Incredible principle. Sow the seeds, water the plant, wait for, you know, it to blossom. Um, in good time. Um, let me let me offer a provocative kind of idea and tell me if this um, resonates or not, right? Um, one of the things that intrigues me is the discipline of looking genuinely to find something to appreciate in the other individual, even if you stand fiercely opposed to their behavior, right? And I've seen that from time to time with a Mother Teresa or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, they had that capacity to see kind of like a light, right, that was within this individual and it would come shining through at times in fleeting ways, 
in, in very kind of narrowly focused ways and they wanted to draw more of it out, but but it was there, right? They never allowed themselves to believe that this person should be summarily rejected, you know? Right. Um, in your approach, where do you get the capacity to be patient and understanding and loving towards these individuals? Are you scanning to look for, even in their, at times, very, you know, um, you know, painfully a biased um, way of thinking about, you know, you and a community that you, you still are finding qualities to appreciate in them and, you know, that, that helps you open your heart more to them or, or not? Is that not? No, a a absolutely. I think you're spot on. Ab absolutely. Because, yeah, uh, you know, uh, amidst all the negativity, there is some light somewhere because all this negativity is a learned behavior. You know, and what can be learned can be unlearned. Uh, as children, perhaps you, I know me, uh, we're taught that a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. So why would I think that a Klansman would change his robe and hood, you know, or a Nazi would change his swastika? Uh, that's who they are. Well, I'm wrong. Uh, because a leopard and, and tiger cannot change their spots or stripes because that's who they are. They're born with those spots and stripes. A Klansman or a Nazi is not born with that robe and hood or that swastika. That is something that is acquired, all right? So, you know, I, I, I see all this negativity, but I also see them being very kind to their children. They're working hard at their job. They're, they're nice to their wife. They want this for their kids. They want this for their family, you know? These are the same things that I would want for mine. So I see that and I need to open up a little bit and show them, you know, hey, you know, we have more in common than you realize, you know? So I take that time to, to find those commonalities and build upon those. And the more you build upon the commonalities, the less and less the, the, the things you have in contrast begin to matter. That reminds me of this quote from Mandela that Obama also once tweeted. Um, you know, it's something about how um, people are not born knowing how to hate others on the basis of the color of the skin or religion or gender or something. You know, they have to learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, then they can also learn to love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And loving comes a lot more natural because we all seek that nourishment, that hug. We want, we, we want to be nourished. We don't want to be hated. So why are we learning to hate, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so true, so true, so true. There are two people that, you know, your story also reminds me of. I, I don't know if you've come across, you know, them or their story. Um, one is Antoinette Tuff, and the other is Matthew Stevenson. Any of these names ring a bell? The name Matthew Stevenson rings a bell. I'm not sure where I know it from, but I've, I've heard that name. The first one, is Antoinette too? Yeah, Tuff. T-U-M. No, I'm not familiar, but I will look them up. Okay, yeah, just, just very briefly, Ma Matthew Stevens, and I'm graced to have been, you know, his professor at Columbia, and he, in college, encountered this individual who was um, the heir apparent to the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he was the godson of David Duke, uh, you know. Oh, you're, no, you're, you're talking about um, uh, Derek. Derek Black, exactly. Yes, I know Derek very well, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. So Ma Matthew Stevenson was the gentleman who started Derek on his journey towards transformation. Ah, okay. Got it. That's where I know the name. 
he's Jewish. He used to hold these Shabbat dinners. Right. Campus was basically, you know, ostracizing, you know, Derek Black. And he said, you know, let's invite him, you know, into our midst. Right. And exactly. Walk across the cafeteria. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. 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 Yes. And so his journey with him was very similar to what you just shared as your core principles, you know, these five values. And I would say, I mean, in what I'm hearing from you, Daryl, there is the sixth value, right? Which is this notion of patience of sowing the seeds and just waiting, you know, not yes. seeking instant gratification that I want results here and now. I want to fix you now, you know, and if you walk away now, you know, then I'm defeated, you know, not like that, right? And so that's what he did. It took like a year and a half, two years of just continuously inviting him over those dinners where gradually he starts to open up. First, he befriends them and then gradually, you know, Derek Black starts to open up and, you know, disavows and, you know, walks away from his uh, earlier views. Very much, you know, power to the similar kind of story. The other one, Antoinette Taff, incredible, incredible story. Um, she was a... Um, accountant, you know, in a school in Atlanta. And at one point, this, you know, man walks in with, you know, intent on doing us one of these mass school shootings with a lot of armament and bullets. And she happened to be manning the front desk at that time because the reception was the receptionist wasn't there. And she calls 911. And this is a recording which actually is now available on YouTube and stuff as she's talking to the 911 party and the police are coming there and all of that. And so therefore, you can actually hear this recording of her having this exchange with this gentleman you know, that was about to commit this school shooting. And she talks him out of it. She gets him disarmed. And then she gets him to walk into the arms of the police to get arrested. And she does it all through those values that you're talking about. Love so, and, and respect and giving him a listening ear, finding common ground with him. The idea that it can be applied even in a moment of high stress like that where somebody like a gunman is coming in proves to me more and more the undertap potentialities, you know, of the values that you're talking about, right? That so why not teach? Why not begin teaching these values in kindergarten, in first, third grade? You know, you can you can even tone them down, of course, for little kids, and then increase them the intensity of them as you get older in the older grades. But let's start now. It's always better to start with a good habit than it is to break a bad habit. One of the things I'm very drawn to, since I've been so invested in education with my career in academia in recent years is um, how we have made IQ sort of like a, you know, I, I, would, I would call it like a false god. You know, the assumption is that as long as we keep pushing people to higher academic attainment in IQ terms, in intellectual mastery terms, that's what's going to be redemptive. And that's going to lead to a transformative growth and happiness and success. And those people who have higher IQ are superior in some ways. And, you know, how about these other dimensions of human character? Intelligence is important, but, but so is, you know, the capacity to be emotionally strong, the capacity to be empathetic, to be unconditionally loving, right? I mean, the patient, you know, wow. all of those qualities you're talking about. And somebody may not have necessarily the analytical horsepower of somebody else, but they are able to draw people together and bring the best out of them and nurture, inspire a loving energy. I don't know what you think, but it almost seems to me like the reformation that you're talking about, the need in education, Partly is also about trying to help people self-grade themselves along some of these attributes more than just like STEM curriculum, which I love. You know, I appreciate that. And science is helping advance a lot of things. But as you said, you know, we've come to a place where ideology is, you know, far behind and technology is yeah. way ahead. We, we call certain countries third world countries. But yeah. yet, look at us. Maybe we are third. Maybe perhaps we are first world here ideologically. But we are third world um, 
I'm sorry, we're first world technologically, Logically, but, yeah. but ideologically, we're third world. Because yeah. you look at uh, back when uh, Obama was first running for president. Yeah. You're, uh, there was Mitt Romney, there was Hillary Clinton, there was Obama, and people were saying, oh, I, I don't know if I can vote for a black man. I don't know if I can vote for a woman. I don't know if I can vote for a Mormon. What difference does that make? Huh. Vote for somebody who can run the country. Back in, in the early 1960s, people were saying, oh, I don't know if I can vote for that Kennedy fellow. He's a Catholic, you, yeah. you know? So, yeah. but yet some of these countries that we refer to as third world countries have female presidents, have yeah. female prime ministers or whatever. Yeah. So they are more concerned with the person who runs the country than they are with the gender or the skin color. Yeah. So maybe we need to learn something from that. You know what I mean? You know, building on that, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm at times pained by is the idea that when we think about America's foreign policy and our engagement with the rest of the world, I mean, you grew up in a family, you know, of diplomacy and diplomats, right, with your father. One of the things that I'm, I'm concerned about is how we tend to at times make it out to be about what is in America's interest? What is in America's interest? And I wonder, wait a second, in foreign policy, why would we not strive to try to arrive at a place where what is in America's interest is exactly what's in humanity's interest? Like, exactly. why would those two things ever be opposed to each other, you know? Anyway, so we, we need a new global order, you know, at that very top-down level, and then yet we need to change hearts and minds at the very bottom-up level, like you've said, by sowing the seeds. Some good work to be done in the years ahead. What's Indeed. your dream, in terms of where you want to head next, you know, with everything that you're doing? It's all beautiful, and if you just keep doing exactly that, you know, this is an incredibly beautiful life. Uh, and yet, I'm curious, is there well, the next chapter for you? Honestly, I enjoy being on a stage, yeah. performing music and seeing people smile and dance to my music and have a good time. I would much rather be doing that than going to some KKK rally and watch people marching around in robes and hoods, screaming white power and a burning cross in the background. But that work is also necessary. And my, my biggest uh, hope is that people will see the power in conversation. You know, our, our greatest weapon to combat uh, controversy is also the least expensive weapon. It's free, yet it is the most underused. It's called dialogue. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. A missed opportunity for conversation is a missed opportunity for reconciliation. We need more of that. We spend too much time talking about the other person, talking at the other person, and talking past the other person. We can solve a lot more just spending a few minutes talking with the other person. And I just hope that people would be inspired by some of the things that I've done. And like I said, I don't have an education, uh, a formal education in this type of work. My formal education is in music, okay? I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist, but I have an education through exposure and experience that I can share with people. And if more people can be inspired by this, hopefully they can take it a lot further than I have taken it and start doing these things. Because one person can make a difference in a lot of people, and I've mm -hmm. proven that. Yeah, so beautiful. So I want to encourage all our listeners to think about some one encounter, some one interaction, one relationship where you can go and experiment with stepping your game up on 
you know, some aspects of these values that we've learned from Daryl today that we can use to achieve, you know, over time breakthrough outcomes. Uh, what a beautiful lesson and uh, one that can help transform so much in our families and communities uh, that we can take from Daryl. Last question for you, Daryl. Who has or have been the greatest formative influences on you? You know, when you think back and you look back and say, well, I'm so grateful. I, you know, I, I got so much from, you know, that individual or a couple of individuals, you know, who, who would you look back and feel, feel that gratitude for? Well, I, <laughs> I have a lot of uh, influences, including Martin Luther King and Gandhi and many others. But I would say, if I had to choose a couple people, I would say Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. Oh. And, and why do I choose those people? Uh, yeah. They were the ones who influenced me to get into music. Uh, yeah. You know, before I decided to become a musician, I didn't decide to become a musician until I was around 17 years old. So I was kind of late to the game. But yeah. up until then, I wanted to be either a computer programmer or a spy, an espionage agent. Oh. Uh, my hero was James Bond, right, as a kid. And um, at the time, both vocations, computer programming and spying, were pulling at me with equal force in opposite directions. So I was immobilized. And I kept trying to figure out how can I combine these two careers. At the time, there was no way, back in the 1970s. Today, of course, you can do it. It's called cyber espionage. But that word did not even exist back then, right? So I thought about people that I admired a great deal. And almost, you know, I always liked music. I never played, but I always liked it. And almost... Instantly, two names came to my mind, Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. And what I admired about these two gentlemen was the fact that they had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy with their music. They had touched people that they would never meet, that they would never yeah. even see. Most people uh, maybe have not seen Elvis or Chuck perform. Maybe they have in concert or, or saw them on TV, but they've heard them on the radio. They have their records. They've danced to their music. They've sung their songs. They're happy. I think, you know, that's really cool. How many of those people ever met Elvis Presley or met Chuck Berry? I have, but I'm the exception because I pursued that. But those, pe those two people have touched millions of people. And I thought, you know, that is really cool. That's what I want to do. I want to make people happy. I want to touch people, whether I meet them or not. If I can make them happy, that makes me happy. In closing, I want to I wanna just highlight, since you're so good at finding common ground, I want to practice that value with you here. One place that you and I have common ground is that I, too, when I go to bars, will order cranberry juice. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that was so cool to hear from you. That literally was my response to being in bars and people are drinking beer and I, I go to order something. Uh, the second is, uh, you know, just this notion of, um, being kind of this agent that walks around to different click groups and you know starts to engage with all of them, that has been my habit in life as well. So I really relate to that very much, and I'm so happy to hear that from you. And then the third is you talk about Elvis, you know, and uh, I have something very special that I am so happy to feel a connection with Elvis on. So he had a less publicized but very powerful you know inner life, and along that way he discovered this book called Autobiography of a Yogi and got very drawn and swept up by the teachings of Yogananda, this pioneering yoga master from India who would come in 1920. He visited his um, ashrams in um, California 
of the organization that he formed called Self-Realization Fellowship. And the president of that organization, Yogananda, had passed on by then when Elvis would visit them in the 1960s. The president was a, a Mormon who had uh, moved on to become a nun, and uh, she led this order for over, over 50 years and took on the uh, monastic name called Dayama, the Mother of Compassion. And she has been my favorite person in life. And she and Elvis were very close, were very close. Elvis's wife has talked about how much he drew from her and how he really wanted to, you know, do more of that inner work. And then, of course, his fame and glory and addictions and everything else, you know, challenged him from from getting there. But she and he were were very close. And uh, anyway, so that's so that's another common ground I found with you. This is awesome, though. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> See, the more the more you talk, the more commonality. Close was that gap, man. Close the gap. Close the gap. How beautiful. How beautiful. Well, I'm cheering you on. Godspeed. You have such a beautiful footprint you already are leaving in the sands of time and much more to come the years ahead i'm looking forward to seeing where you take your trajectory thank you so thank much you. i appreciate thank you for, all you're doing for joining us today yeah. thank you very much i look forward to it again one day <laughs>